Hi, this is Mark Schenker from Kicks, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Focus Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of that which you crave, Focus on Metal. I hope that all of you enjoyed last week's show with Richie and I counting down what we thought were our top five Martin Birch engineered, produced, whatever, had some kind of involvement in albums. Definitely was a lot of fun to do, and hopefully that fun kind of came out in the episode as well. This week, it's another bit of retro action as uh, Richie reaches out to producer Bo Hill to talk about a couple of classic albums. And no, one of them isn't the Kicks albums, uh, but I will say that uh, there is a little bit of uh, talk about Kicks later on in the episode including a reference to uh, doing some stuff with uh, bassist Mark Shanker. But that is not what is on the hook this week. Nope. This week, Richie will be sitting down with Bo Hill, and he'll be talking about uh, the fifth studio album from Twisted Sister from 1987. Guys probably remember Love is for Suckers. And since we're going in order on this one, then he's going to talk to Bo all about uh, Rat's fourth album, 1988's Reach for the Sky. So that is what is in store for you this week as Richie sits down with Bo and does a whole bunch of throwback to 1987 and 1988. Lots of good conversation and uh, Richie's digging in on all the rumors, all the hype, all that good stuff, trying to ferret out the truth. Ian Bo with his... uh, his usual way, he's willing to answer just about everything that Richie's thrown at him like he does every time he appears right here on Focus on Metal. So, lots of good stuff for you this week, and so I'm going to hand it over to uh, Richie and producer Bo Hill. Hello? Is that Bo Hill? It is. Hi, Bo. It's Richie here for the interview. How are you feeling? Boy, Richie, you are the uh, most punctual person. I mean, I was watching my clock, and it ticked by to the second. <laughs> well, I know you got an appointment, so I don't want to keep you all day. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm all good. How many hours a day do you normally spend now mixing music? It really just depends. Um, it, it, you know, it's on a per-project basis. You know, some projects come together faster than others, and, and some are, you know, because we're doing everything remotely, sometimes people don't follow the uh, suggestion that I send everybody for uh, session prep. And so if they don't do it, then I have to do it. And it just takes it just takes longer and longer to get the session ready for me to actually work on. Mm. Is it easier now, Bo, to do it because you don't have a label wanting a hit single? You don't you don't have you know management maybe imposing themselves on you and the band imposing themselves on how it's going to sound. Uh, yeah, exactly right. It's a lot more fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The uh, because at this stage in in my career, I mean, people, I, I I mix like mainly groups I've never met, I've never heard of them, anything, you know. So th- this is all kind of based on my reputation. So they they know kind of what they're gonna get or what they're looking for or something like that before they ever send me the files. Okay. But it is, as you as you noted, it is very very nice not to have to deal with some jerk A and R guy, and 
you know, subsequently sometimes the managers get a little crazed and sometimes the guys in the band get a little crazed, but I still interact with them. I mean, you know, they'll, I'll send the mix the way I hear it. And then, you know, they'll have uh, a revision uh, list that, the, you know, turn the vocal up in the second verse, you know, more me, <laughs> that hmm. sort of stuff. Yeah. So, so, Bo, the reason I have you on is I want to talk about two very specific records. One of them is Love is for Suckers, and the other one is the last Rat album you did, Reach for the Sky, because there was a lot of turmoil on both of them. I think the circumstances were a little bit different on both. Um, so I want to do each one of them in the order they were released. So I'm going to start with the, the Twisted Sister album, Love is for Suckers. Can, okay. you, can you remember who called you to do it? Uh, yeah, I, uh, Doug Morris. Okay. And was it sold to you as a D album or a Twisted Sister album? You know, I knew you were going to ask me that question. And uh, to be completely honest with you, I don't ever remember it being pitched as a D solo album. However, I have been asked that question before, and I have read that before. Hmm. And the last time I spoke to D, I didn't, I should have asked him. Hmm. But I, uh, I I can't give you an accurate answer on that. I'm sorry. Okay. Did you know Dee Schneider at all before you did the record? Uh, yeah, peripherally, you know, because I was working a lot at Atlantic and, and he was there. And so I think we probably met a few times, but, uh, you know, I certainly couldn't say that we were best of friends hanging out, having cocktails after work. Mm. Now, when you spoke to Dee the first time, what sort of record did he want? Oh, you're asking really great questions. Um, I think he, I don't think that he specified, I'm, I want to do this. Um, you know, this was coming at the, at the beginning of, of the grunge period. And, you know, all of us were, were critically aware that the industry was in the process of a, uh, uh, cataclysmic change, shall we say. And so I think that D wanted to get, you know, as, uh, as contemporary a, a record as he could and still be true to his followers and his fans. Mm. I've read his autobiography. And one of the things he says in, in the autobiography is he wanted the album to be more, more poppy and he wanted more, uh-huh. key, more keyboards on it and maybe some saxophone on it. Do you remember him ever mentioning that to you? Well, we did. We put horns on it for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just, I don't remember any of any of that kind of stuff as being preconditioned. Uh, you know, we we used the material that we had, and so D was writing in a little more pop style, so that was kind of a given. And you know, and then just during the course of the record, I, I think I said, "Hey, look, let's let's put a horn part on this. What do you think?" And he said, "Yeah, let's go for it." So. Now, up until I mean, that's that's where I remember it. Hmm. Up until then, Bo, had you done nearly all of your recording in L.A.? Because this one was done in New York. No. Um, I lived, I moved to L.A. in 1988. And all all the records that I did at least were partially done at Atlantic Studios in New York. Okay. Uh, up until I moved. And... And I moved in 88, and then the, 
month after I moved, I did Steve Stevens, and he wanted to do it back in New York. <laughs> so I moved to L.A. to turn around and fly back to New York for three months. Okay. Now, Stephen Benben engineered this. Was he an in-house engineer at, at Atlantic, or did you know him? <clears throat> no, he was an in-house. Actually, he was an in-house second. And uh, for the first record that I did at Atlantic, which I think was, um, well, I did part of part of Rat there, and then I did Air Race there. And he was he was working uh, as my second. My first engineer was uh, Jim Faraci back in those days, but St- Stefan was so good, and he was the thing that I loved about him was after he'd worked with me a couple of times, he knew exactly where I was going before I ever got there. And so he was one step ahead in his setup, one step ahead in everything, and he was really consistent and just an overall good guy. So I I loved working with him. It must have been a relief for you not to have to engineer as well as produce and mix. Yes. It was, to be honest, I had no idea that the Rat Record was going to do what it did. And so... I kind of forced myself to engineer and do everything just in case the record flopped that somebody might like my engineering skills and then I would be able to work. So that was kind of the, the the honest truth behind all that. And when I finally decided that I didn't need to stick my head in the kick drum to figure out where the sweet spot was that I could get somebody else to do it. It was. It made my life a lot easier. So I could focus more on music and the arrangement and the performances, and you know, not figuring out why the uh, the patch bay was humming when it wasn't supposed to be. Mm. Now, when Dee played you the songs, the demos, uh, what was your initial reaction to them? Did you like them all, or did you think they needed a lot of work? Uh, again, great question. The biggest problem, as as memory serves, that I had had with starting this project was um, I felt the guitar playing in general was pretty weak, and uh, and so you know Dee and I had to sit down and have a serious chat about uh, bringing in some people to uh, to help out with that, and once that took place then I think a lot of the other kind of structural issues kind of took care of themselves. If that, I'm not trying to dodge your question. I think that was kind of the thought process. Hmm. Now, I know you had a history with Red Beach before then. He'd brought him in and he'd done sessions with you. Um, I am curious how Ronnie Latecro got involved in this. Uh, what did he do? Guitars. And he... Uh, I think he's down as all songs arranged by Twisted Sister, Bo Hill, Red Beach, and Ronnie Latecro. Ronnie, okay. Well, then that that would have been a D a D thing because I, I don't re- I don't remember actually working with him. Uh, but if 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 he's on the record, then he's on the record for sure. Hmm. Uh, but my interaction was was more with uh, with Reb. Okay. Now. I did interview Reb about four or five years ago, and we did a career discussion, and this was one of the records I asked him about. Now, he said he's all over the record. Um, how much of the guitars on the record are his, and how much are actually the guys in Twisted Sister? Uh, 
I would say that Reb is is right, uh, and he's probably right in a conservative way. Um, what I tried to do on that record in particular was I got Reb. I think Reb played everything. I got him to play the solos. I got him to play the rhythm parts and things like that. And then when I had the guys from Twisted come in and to have them play their parts, I just wanted all of that information so that I could go song by song, section by section, and select the the strongest, most compelling performance, regardless of who it was. And so wherever wherever I could, you know, I wanted to use the guys from from Twisted. But the simple truth of the matter is is that. Reb is such an incredible guitar player that even the the simplest of parts, you know, if you listen to them side by side, you'd kind of have to go, well, you know, this one's a little bit better than the the guys from Twisted. So I would say easily 90%. Okay. Were Eddie Ojeda and J.J. French aware that Reb had tracked guitars before they came in to do it? Uh, At some point, we, you know, we went public with it because if memory serves, JJ kind of wasn't there that much. Um, as if memory serves, I mean, we, we didn't make any secret about it, that we were bringing in some other people. Um, I think, and I, again, I haven't spoken to any of these guys about this, but, um, perhaps they wanted, um, it was more of a, it was sold to them like, hey, we're going to bring in somebody to take care of the solos. And then it just morphed from there. If mm. that answers your question, sort of. Yeah. Now, I have to ask, if the two Twisted Sister guys didn't play the majority of the guitars, who, who played the drums and bass on the record? Uh, I think, I believe the Twisted guys did. Okay. So you didn't feel, that's, that's, the, you didn't feel the need, Bo, to get any additional musicians in to do the, the drums and the bass? I don't think so. I think, I think we used, we used the twisted guys. And if memory serves, I think we probably used, uh, the twisted guitar players on the basic tracking session so that it, it was the band per se. And with the, with the understanding that I was going to bring somebody in for the solos. And then I, I believe as an offshoot of that, uh, I just, I said, Hey, Rip, can you go ahead and, uh, do me a track of the rhythm guitar part on this? Hmm. And Reb being Reb, you know, he had it down like in one take and that was pretty much it. Hmm. But I think, I think we cut it as twisted. I mean, I think that was the intention was to go in with twisted. And then as the results weren't quite, what we had all hoped that they would be. Then I started making the, uh, you know, the uncomfortable producer decisions that need to be made. And of course I brought D in and, and, you know, and he kind of had the final say, I mean, if he didn't like Reb, then we wouldn't have used him. Yeah. Was D there for the, from day one till it was finished? Yes. Okay. One of the things he mentions in his book, about that recording was he was having marriage problems and did he confide in you at all and how did it affect the recording was there anything that stands out to you uh i wasn't sure if you were going to go there but yes i knew everything that was going on 
And, uh, you know, it, I think it, to be fair, it was probably distracting to him. I mean, you know, it's just, it's hard to get yourself in that clean, um, creative space when you've got something really serious going on in the background. Mm. And he had moved out of his house and was staying at a, at a hotel close to the studio. Um, but yeah, there were, yes, he had some, there were some side issues going on that I'm sure had to have, uh, distracted him to a certain extent. Mm. Now, was it a relief to work with someone like Dido? Because he's, sto- he's sober, completely sober, doesn't drink, doesn't do drugs. And you'd work with a few bands before then that, you know, like their extracurricular activities. <laughs> You're so kind. <laughs> well, I listen, I loved working with D um, for a variety of reasons. Um, he's an unbelievably intelligent guy. And he is probably one of the most underrated singers of that ilk. Uh, I mean, you know, I always kind of thought of D as a character caricature of himself you know when he filed off his teeth and turned them into fangs and and he's got that wild crazy hair and then he all the crazy makeup and stuff those guys used to wear you know that that sort of helped form my opinion before i ever met him and uh and he was the exact opposite i mean he's a very funny very intelligent really serious guy that has got probably the most underrated rock voice out there. And so I was constantly surprised. I mean, every time the guy would open his mouth and I'd say, Hey, can you, can you sing this? And he'd do it. And I was like, Whoa. So it was, I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. Um, was D tough on himself in the studio? Yeah, he was. I mean, he would, he would be like the first guy to jump in and go, no, that sucked. I can do it better. Okay. And and I believed him. I mean, he turned me into a believer. If if he had a better one in him, I wanted to get it. And what was he like at like taking advice from you? Was he belligerent at all or would he take anything on board and try it? Yeah. He was he, it was a real cooperative effort as I remember. I mean, there was like there was no drama at least, at least between D and myself, there was there was no drama that I can remember at all. Um, and I can't like one thing that that he he would do crazy stuff spontaneously. So when we were cutting horns, we had the whole horn section in there, and then D shows up, and he he had a folding chair, so he showed up and he and he sat down right in the row with the uh, with the horn section. And then when the horn section starts playing, I thought, well, you know, hey, he wants to sit out there and be with the horns. Okay, no problem. And then D breaks out a kazoo and starts playing his kazoo <laughs> on the horn tracks. <laughs> nice. And I, I've got, I think, I've got a picture of that on my website, I think. Okay. But it's, I mean, it's, he... He just did crazy stuff like that, which was always unexpected and very entertaining. Okay. Now, when you were mixing the record, um, I, I'm assuming D was at the mixes, but what about the other guys? Did they turn up at the mixes at all, especially the guitar players? 
That I I don't remember. Um, normally, I kind of like to do. I kind of like to keep the uh, uh, the control room as clear as possible during mixing because in my in my brain, it always sounds bad until it sounds right. And sometimes uh, I learned over the years that if the band is sitting in there while I'm trying to get it not to be bad, they get bored, which is understandable. And pretty soon everything is bad. <laughs> and so I tried to start to start working a little more privately so I could at least get it to a point without too many distractions that that I was comfortable with letting people listen to the work, evaluate it, criticize it, whatever. But sometimes, like if, if I'm still EQing the kick drum and somebody comes in and goes, oh my God, that's awful. Well, okay. You know, I, I just started. So yeah, that's, so D probably, if I remember correctly, you know, he would wait and he would say, when do you want me? And I'd say, come in at noon and let's review what we did yesterday and we'll see where we're at today. And he would do that. Okay. Now, do you remember getting any feedback at all from Eddie and JJ when they heard it, saying, that's not my parts on the album? Uh, <clears throat> again, I don't know. Okay. Uh, I, don't re- I don't remember uh, that. But it, it, there was a certain point where it was just kind of a foregone conclusion, you know, that, that those guys were going to have uh, kind of a minimal input. Um. But I, again, I don't remember it as being, you know, unpleasant or, uh, or, or maybe, maybe I just wasn't privy to those conversations. Um, but I, th- I think they kind of drifted in and drifted out. Uh, we certainly, there certainly wasn't any sort of a, of a ban, you know, like you can't come to the studio or anything like that. Yeah. Now, the reissue of this has got 14 tracks on it and, the original album had 10, so you recorded extra tracks in the sessions. Was that unusual for you at the time to record extra tracks? Because that would have been wasting studio money. No, not at all. And there is an economic consequence to this. Back in those days, if if you'll remember, one of the things that, that became quite popular was um, uh, people doing soundtracks for movies, which didn't appear in the movie. It didn't have anything to do with the movie. It was just a, a potpourri of bands contributing, you know, like to, uh, um, I'm trying to think of who really started it, but anyway, uh, it was those compilation records like, uh, like the movie lost boys. Uh, I recorded one song with Roger Daltrey on that. And that was, the only song I did. And then there were nine other artists, nine other producers, nine other people. And so what we would do is we would overcut the record and then we would take the 10 best to put on our record. And then we had four in the can that we could uh, try to place on one of these uh, soundtrack compilations. Okay. And because there was movie money involved in that, those were always very, very monetarily satisfying. 
Okay. Now, the, when the album came out, um, it didn't do well. Were you surprised that it didn't do well? <clears throat> I was a little bit. Uh, but at that point in time, I don't know where that was in relationship to the uh, Nirvana calendar, but pretty much everything, the bottom fell out of everything uh, from the kind of hairband rock era at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Support from MTV was lost. Radio support was lost. And without those two components, you know, you were really having a lot of trouble. Mm. did the Winger album in 88 that came out in 88 on the Rockscang record and I, I'm going to move on to the Rat record now because that was done more or less the same time as those two after the Twisted album um, when you did Dancing Undercover and you finished it did you think you were finished working with Rat? Uh, yes that's a short answer <laughs> well Dancing Undercover was a it was a difficult record to do uh, for a huge variety of reasons. Um, but I thought, I thought it was over and, uh, or at least, you know, with myself and the band. And mm. so that's why I didn't start reach for the sky. Now, when you finished dancing undercover, were were you on good terms with any of the band members at all, or how, what was the relationship like? <clears throat> well, the, the one person that I remember that I was on very bad terms with was Blotzer, and uh, Robin and I always always got along, but he was starting to have issues of his own that was making him a little weird, and. Um, and Stephen and I were were in in good shape, and Warren had some uh, uh, some misguided issues with me, which we sort of uncovered pre uh, reach for the sky. Okay, so so which guy in the band do you think success had changed the most? I'm sorry, say that again. W- which guy in Rat do you think over the years you work with him had success changed the most from when you originally met them? Robin. Yeah, the drugs? Yep. Okay. Why was he just more difficult to deal with, not trustworthy? He was, um, well, I can't, I, I can't really say that because Robin was, was really my go-to guy. I mean, if, if I needed something from the band or if I needed some help lobbying my position on something, oh. Robin was the guy I would go to. Even even when he was 
slightly out of his mind. Mm. Um, so he was the leader of the band, was he? From my perspective, definitely. Okay. Now, again, according to, the, depending on who you talk to, uh, there was always controversy among the Rat members. Like, sometimes they liked each other. A lot of times they didn't like each other. I mean, intensely. And, you know, and that spilled over into the studio. And so I would, I had to be the janitor and come clean up the mess to whatever degree I could on occasion. And, and it, it just, it made things, um, quite difficult sometimes. And then, you know, other days it was fine, but they were kind of all over the map with themselves. And then they were kind of all over the map with me too. Hmm. So I know you've spoken a lot about getting a performance out of Stephen in the studio, but other than Stephen, who is the most difficult guy to get a performance out of in the studio? Blotzer. Okay. Just what, his timing or his attitude or? He was a, he was a hard guy to work with. Um, you know, sometimes, and again, it was very... Uh, unpredictable. Some days he'd come in and he would really nail it. And some days he'd come in and he would, you know, Warren was 90% always great. And Juan was too. Juan was a very good bass player. Uh And um, so the biggest the biggest issues that I would have would have had would have been Blotzer. And we tried to get most of that stuff ironed out in pre-production so it wasn't costing everybody a fortune while we sat around and had these mindless debates about ridiculous things. Yeah. And, but, you know, still some, sometimes the, the acrimony would spill over in, into the studio a little bit. And there you have it. Oh, did you ever think of getting in a session drummer to make it go smoother? No. You want you want not, to... not with not with Rat. Okay. Okay. What about the other guys? Did, you, mean, did the other guys even mention it to you that it's not working out? We need to get it done. No. Uh, it, it. I mean, in general, bringing in people into a band situation was something that I tried to do as infrequently as possible only if it was you know if it would have been production malfeasance for me not to mention something for me to let poor performances go just because i didn't want to ruffle any feathers in the band Mm. okay so when you heard that mike stone was going to do reach for the sky um did you know mike at all i didn't no okay so you didn't you didn't know how he worked or what difficulties he might have working with the band. Um, well, I mean, I've, I, I honestly I didn't know uh, too much about Mike other than I heard that he was a really really nice guy, and that he was that he his reputation was primarily as an engineer, and I I could be wrong about that, um, but that was that was pretty much it. Now, before Doug Morris called you and said, told you that the album was in trouble, um, had you heard from anybody else what was going on before then? Um, 
Not that, not that I can recall with any degree of specificity. Um, I think, you know, pro- I'm sure somebody probably came up and said, Hey, have you heard the new rap stuff? And then I probably said, no, I really haven't. You know, hmm. they have no, no reason to send me anything. And I'm, I'm working on something else anyway. So, but I, I don't remember specifically. Okay. Tell me about the phone call from Doug. Can you remember what exactly he said? Sure. Uh, he said, um, I need a favor. And since Doug basically discovered me and gave me my career, that's all he ever had to say. I, I said, absolutely. Just name it. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he said, um, I want you to do rat. And I said, well, why? I mean, Mike Stone is doing it. He said, well, I heard some of the roughs of the basic session, the basic tracking session. And his quote was, they sound like a goddamn Holiday Inn band. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I, and I do remember that quote as like it was yesterday. And so I, I said, okay, absolutely. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he said, okay, uh, I've, I've had some uh, a copy made of the of the roughs that we've been listening to, and it and it's on its way over to your place right now. And I said okay, and so I listened to it, and then Doug and I had another conversation, and I was just like, so what what are what are what are my rules of engagement here? And he said, do whatever in the fuck you want. And I went <laughs> okay. Now, Bo, were you? Were you in the middle of doing a project when Doug called you, or were you in between projects? I'm sure that I was that I was in the middle of something. I don't remember what it was, but back in those days, you know, I was working round the clock. I don't remember which record I would have been doing. Um, okay, I, I'm guessing it could have been the Winger record. It could have been the Rocks Gang record. They were all released in '88. Yeah, very possible. It could it could have been any of those. Okay. Um. So tell me about meeting the band when you got back in to do the project. Sitting down with them. Did you did you just go into the studio with them, or did you all go out to dinner, or how did that all happen? Okay. Well, the uh, the funny thing with the Rat Guys is every rec- that they fired me after every record. And the way that it normally went was I delivered the record. It's, it's sold however many millions it sold. I get a call from my lawyer and he says, did you read Billboard this week? And I say, no, I didn't. And he said, well, they fired you on page six or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, wow, okay, well, that that's no good. And so Doug would always was always one step ahead of all of this. And then he would call me and he'd, he'd say, those guys fired you, you know? I said, yeah, I was, uh, I, I was just made aware of that. He said, well, don't worry because you're doing the record. I went, oh, okay. So then we would, we would have this little patch-up session where each guy, I would go out to dinner with each guy in the band and we would air our grievances, have a few too many sockies, and shake hands and say, okay, great, let's, let's go get them. And this happened every record. P- 
pretty much the exact same procedure. They never actually fired me to my face. They always did it very publicly, and and I I don't remember why they did it like that either. But somebody in the band would be doing an interview with somebody from Billboard, and if you know, it would always come up. So how'd you like working with Bo, or um, when are you guys starting the next record? And then it would come out. Oh yeah, we're not using him again. <laughs> and then they they'd print it, and uh, and then. Doug would call their manager, Marshall, and say, are you out of your fucking mind? You can't do this. And then Marshall would go back to the band and say, hey, the record company is very unhappy with this move you guys are considering. And if you want to stay on Atlantic, uh, Doug wants you to use Bo. So the truth is they never, ever really wanted me to work work with them. That's the truth. (laughs) Now... Rock Candy Records brought out a reissue of this a couple of years ago, and I had an interview with Warren in it. And you bring up a point about going out to dinner with them each individually before every record. And Warren said in, in the interview, in the, in the CD booklet, that he was the one that wanted Mike Stone. Um, did he say anything to you, can you remember back then, about saying that he didn't want to work with you, that he was probably the main instigator to work with someone else? Um. Uh, not directly. One of the one of the issues when when Warren realized that I was going to finish Reach for the Sky and we went out to have our little dinner, he developed something that he'd been he'd been wrestling with this for the previous three albums, and I didn't realize it. So Warren, when we first started, I think was nineteen years old or eighteen years old. And he was talking with one of his muso buddies way back then. And I want to, uh, I want to point the finger at, at somebody in Motley Crue, but I, I can't back it up. But the long and the short of it is, is that whoever it was that Warren was talking to gave him a boatload of incorrect information. So they told Warren that the reason why I liked to work the way that I worked was because it was saving money for the for the project, and I was keeping the money. So, in Warren's mind, you know, Atlantic would write me, Bo Hill, a check for one hundred and fifty thousand or two hundred thousand, whatever it was, and I got to keep whatever was left. And he finally said that to me at dinner, and I said, "Are you out of your mind?" I mean, Atlantic doesn't write me a check ever. All I do is I just submit a budget. And then Atlantic and their business affairs people, they write the checks. I don't. I, and I get my advance. And then whatever money I save the band goes to the band. And so he had had that stuck in his craw for all these years, you know, because when I would work, I would work. And it was, okay, guys, 10 o'clock band call. Oh, dude, we don't want to come in at 10. No, we're coming in at 10, and we're going to finish at 7. Why do you have to keep doing that? You know, and they really, it, it, I was not a very popular person with respect to the scheduling. But, we, but that's how I wanted to work. And Warren, in particular, took great offense at this because he was convinced that I was pocketing the money 
which I never saw in the first place, but he was convinced I was pocketing the money. Wow. Now, Bo, you came back to do the record, and you had non-negotiable preconditions that if they weren't met, you weren't going to do it. Can you tell me what some of those were? Uh, well, I gave myself a raise, uh, and I said that that I had final say over whatever songs we were going to keep, whatever songs we weren't going to keep. And, uh, I mean, basically I just took control of the project. Okay. And that was my, con- my condition was we do it my way or I'm not, I'm, I'm going home. Okay. Who do you think was the most ecstatic about going back to your way? Was it, was it obviously Steven? Maybe Stephen. Again, to be completely honest, I don't think any of them were. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I think that they 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 knew their backs were up against the wall. They tried to do something different, hoping that they were going to get a great result, and the record company rejected it. And they had an ultimatum: if you want to stay on Atlantic. Bo's going to fix this record. If you don't want to stay on Atlantic, here's your walking papers. Best of luck. That was it. Yeah. Now, you kept some of the tracks that they recorded with Mike. Did it ever enter your head that you just wanted to re-record the whole record, that you wanted to be in control of all of it? Well, no, because some of it was it was fine. Now, we, we it was basic tracks that we kept. Uh, I think... I I know we reworked all the vocals, lyrics, all overdubs, everything else. So it was just basic tracks. And, you know, and and some of the tracks were like very rat. You know, okay, this is all right. We don't need to to reinvent the wheel. And so we kept some of the work. I I don't remember exactly how much we kept. But, you know, then, then I would come in and, fix or change or augment whatever whatever wasn't working for me and off we went was there any contact at all between you and mike stone when you no. none at all okay none i believe he he was australia and so i think that after the record or he he got removed i think i think he went back to australia Okay. And again, I could be totally wrong about that, but no, Mike, you know, I didn't hear a peep from him, not pro or con or anything else. Mm. Now, the one record I know you did work on for this was Way Cool Jr. Um, Do you remember how how that all came about, the recording of that? Yes, I do. Uh... Real slick, but I 
I remember uh, I was this is and this is almost exactly how Lay It Down happened was I heard Warren playing that riff and then uh, I forget exactly how it, it went but but because I was one of the main writers on that song and uh, and then I took a copy of that riff and then went back to my place and started working on it and then said, hey, how about this? And uh, that's kind of how it happened. And then I was able to get the guys to agree to do uh, a horn section on it. And I used the same guys that I did on, on Twisted. Oh, okay. Nice. Nice. And again, Chris Bote and the New West Horns and, and all these guys. Chris is, I mean, some sort of virtuoso guy by all rights. He deserves it. And I believe the rest of the guys in that section became the horn section for the Rolling Stones. So they were unbelievably good. And they're just, and they were kids, but they were very, very good. Mm. Now, when the album was mixed on the band Heritage, did they say anything to you about the mixes? Because they originally went into that with a different producer. They probably wanted it to sound different. And you come back in and you mix it the way you mix it. Was there any rumblings yeah. at all from any of them saying, I'm not really a fan of what you did? Or did they just shut up and get on with it? I don't remember any rumblings at the time. However, subsequently to that, you know, I saw, I saw a, uh, an interview that Juan did. And which he was quite dismissive, you know, he said, yep, we wound up with another Bow Hill record <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just got a couple of questions to finish up, Bo. Uh, sure. You did four records at Rat. Where would you rank Reach for the Sky in the four of them? Uh, I would rank that pretty high up. Okay. I would say I would rank that number two. My favorite Rat record was uh invasion second one yeah love that yeah. album and the final question i have when they went in and did detonator was part of you waiting for the phone call to go in and rescue that no um <laughs> i had gone to i i was busily putting together interscope records at the time and so no you wouldn't you would you probably wouldn't, you probably wouldn't have done it anyway I, I, I wouldn't have done it. And the other thing was, again, the Nirvana effect I was painfully aware of. And so, you know, if I could have recorded Soundgarden, I would have. Hmm. But I, I think Detonator went down in flames the same way that Pull or Push or whatever it was from Winger went down in flames. It was just, you know, the audience had moved on. And and I and I knew that that was happening, so I probably wouldn't have done it anyway. Mm. Now I I know you mixed a track from Stephen a few years ago, so there was some contact there. But do you, is there any contact at all with the other three guys in the band? Zero. None. Okay. Well, I got I got one cryptic email from of all people Juan, who was one of my largest detractors over the years. And he said, it was a strange email. He said, Blotzer is suing me. And uh, my lawyer wants me to uh, see if you'll 
give a deposition or something along those lines. And of course, I just ignored it. So that was the last contact I had with him. And every now and then, uh, Stephen and I chat on the phone or uh, we've actually, you know, maintained a a good relationship over the years. Mm. I think he's always been very complimentary about the way you work with him on his vocals. Well, it worked, you know, there was, and again, this is, this is kind of a funny byproduct of it. So we did seller and we're now in pre-production to do invasion. And Steven doesn't come to pre-production anymore because he used to, he did for, for a seller and he may show up every now and then, but the guys in the band were bitching at him and they were going, Steven, you got to come to a, to pre-production. And he said, why? I mean, all I'm going to do is, is repeat whatever Bo tells me to sing and he's going to change it in the studio anyway. So why do I need to come to pre-production? <laughs> well, Bo, I know you got an appointment to, uh, to get to, um, do you want to give out the, the social media sites where people can get in touch with you? Oh, um, just my website, which is, uh, Bo Hill Productions. Okay. Cause I don't, I, I don't do a, we don't do Facebook or Twitter or any of that stuff. You, <laughs> I stay you, away from that. You're, you, you know what? You're probably better off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I've got enough junk crawling around in my head right now. Anyway, <laughs> Here, did you ever think about doing a book? You know, um, my wife has been on to me. Actually, I've had several friends on to me about doing something like that. And, you know, I just, when I close my eyes and I try to conceptualize what it would look like or what it would be, you know, I get, I get very stuck. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I read Stevens, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. And I read these and, you know, uh, I guess from a format point of view, I can't like conceptualize it. So that's why I've never moved forward. Okay. All right. But that's why, you know, I do interviews with people like you and every, every time I do one, you know, some new thing pops up into my head and I went, and that I just forgot about over the years. Yeah. You didn't, (sighs) you didn't keep diaries for, did you? Which one? You, you never kept any diaries or journals? No, uh uh-uh. Okay. Um, no, I, ne- I never did. Uh, and to be quite honest, I, I, I'm kind of, I'm a bit surprised that at the Renaissance, because, I mean, I'm, I'm getting requests to do interviews, like, every week. And I, I really can't, I can't really put my finger on why that's happening. But I'm glad to do them. Hmm. It's because the music's good, Bo. Oh, you're too kind. Yeah, and I'm not even going to talk to you about the 30th anniversary of In the Heart of the Young. That's this year, too. Uh, yeah, there's no point in talking about that. <laughs> but I will give you a little, a little hint that there will be a 30th anniversary remix of Midnight Dynamite. Oh, the Kicks record. Nice. Yeah, because they, I, I redid uh, Blow My Fuse, because they did their 30th, it's called Kicks Fuse 30 Reborn, mm-hmm. <laughs> Reblown, yeah. and um, 
and everybody liked the outcome of that. And so now we're going to go do the record that I did, which was uh, Midnight Dynamite. Fantastic. Are you going to have fun going through that again? Oh, I, I, kicks are the guys that I stay the most in the most contact with. Mm-hmm. And I've been out to see them a few times, and their their bass player and I are both scuba diving freaks. So we go scuba diving at various places in the world, and and so I'm I'm in close contact with those guys. Nice, nice. Well, Bo, I'm going to leave you go. I know you got an appointment, and uh, it's been a pleasure okay. talking to you. Pleasure is mine, Rich. Thank you. All right, take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, there you go. Richie's chat with Bo Hill, all about rats reach for the sky and Twisted Sisters love is for suckers. Definitely bringing back a little bit of memories for me. Uh, at that point in time, I was uh, I was working uh, terrestrial radio here in the Bay State, and I can remember those things rolling into the air studio, checking them out and stuff. More so the Twisted album after that. By 88, I was off of that station, but still hanging out here and there and uh, checking out what was going on. But uh, as I mentioned way at the beginning, lots of good stuff in there. Bo was always usually pretty willing to answer any kind of questions, what he remembers and stuff. And uh, hopefully that clears up a lot of things that have been going around the net about either one of those two albums. And also, as Bo made mention, uh, be sure to pick up your own copy of uh, Fuse 30 by Kicks. Lots of good stuff on there as well as he uh, remasters the classic uh, Blow Your Fuse album. And if you go up to uh, the official Kicks site, there's a link over there to their merch shop at uh, Right Rock. And you can pick up your own copy of Fuse 30. Well, hope you enjoy everything we've been bringing you lately. We definitely enjoy bringing it to you. Again, check out last week's episode. We had a blast actually recording that one. We're talking all about the top five Martin Birch albums that, uh, you know, we ranked them between Richie and myself. A few same things, a few different things, but, uh, you know, it's all Martin Birch. And, you know, I mentioned in the episode last week, you could have just picked five Maiden albums, one right after the other. And uh, that would still be uh, a better list than a lot of people could come up with with uh, with producers, right? But we've got lots more good stuff on the way. Pretty much the week after we relaunched after summer break, the interview requests kept coming in hard and heavy for Richie. So he's been busy doing uh, two or three interviews. And so we'll see after uh, this week what shakes out for next week and what we're going to bring you, whether it's going to be something for a new and up-and-coming album or we're going to do another throwback again, or maybe Richie will make his way down to the studio again and we'll do a discussion or maybe it'll be a part interview, part discussion. Who knows? It's all up in the air at this point. Uh, The most important thing to remember, though, is that Focus on Metal is back again after our summer break, rolling along like always. And I will say one more thing before I get out of here. I really hope that Metallica plans on releasing that uh, drive-in cinema concert onto a DVD in the future as well, because that was definitely a great show, cool vibe and everything on that. And uh, it was a great night out, and I'm hoping that they do eventually release that to uh, to DVD, because I definitely want that in my Metallica collection. But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie... Myself and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, like we always say, be safe, have yourselves a great metal week, and until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant.
still here. It's over. Go home.